Well, good morning, church. Glad you are here this morning, and I pray that you are no longer in your Thanksgiving coma, but we're glad that you're here. Hopefully you enjoyed uh, time with your family. I know that Sonia and I and David enjoyed a lot of time with our family, but I must say, I sure did miss this family. And so I'm glad to be back, glad to be here with you. And I just want to give a quick shout out to uh, Randy Schwartz and to Drew Hopkins, who did an incredible job on this stage, bringing God's Word. Uh, They both did those passages more justice than I ever could have. And so thank you, men, for your word the last couple of weeks. Now, hopefully what we've kind of gathered is over the last several weeks is this idea that Jesus has kind of shifted from a conversations that were one-on-one to more of a some group dynamics. And what we found out was we, we shifted away from that to this idea of, of embracing Jesus and embracing some things about Jesus. And so we started in chapter 5 by talking about embracing the fact that he is God. Remember Jesus talked about that he would raise the dead and, and nobody raised the dead. Anybody pulled that one off yet? Nobody? Okay, so only God can do that. And so Jesus establishes early on that, that he is God and we need to embrace that fact That he's not just a man, but he's a God-man. That he, the Father, and the Spirit are co-equal, co-eternal, and they are God. Right? And then we moved on from there, and Randy talked about the witnesses. And we talked about how Jesus would not not just bear witness of himself, but we found out and need to embrace the truth that Jesus is the life giver. And we saw that through John the Baptist's testimony about what Jesus has done for him and what Jesus meant to him. And so we find out that not only we need to embrace that Jesus is God, but we need to embrace that Jesus is the life giver. And the last week we saw that Jesus is our provider. As Jesus stood there that day, I mean, if there's one miracle that you would like to go back to and have experienced for many of us, it was last week's miracle, right? When Jesus fed the 5,000 people, because we all are enamored with the fact that there's a few fish and there's a few loaves of bread and how Jesus could take it and he could just like begin to, to divide the food. And as he divided the food, he never seemed to run out. So much so that when he was done, there were basketfuls left over. And while this miracle was an incredible miracle, what was most important about the miracle is what Drew talked about last week, is that Jesus is our provider. But not only that, Jesus is greater than Moses. The one they would look to, the one they would go, Ben, this, is, this was God's man for us. And Jesus is like, yes, but I'm greater than Moses. And so we need to embrace that fact that Jesus is our provider. Now, today as we get into John chapter 6 a little bit deeper, what we're going to find out is that Jesus is all that we need. Now, I know that's a thing we come back to. But what I mean by it is this, is that we need to embrace this truth, that only Jesus can fully and finally satisfy the cravings of our soul. Did you hear me on that, church? Because we try to find it everywhere else, don't we? We look in a lot of different places. But only Jesus can fully and finally satisfy the cravings of our soul. And so he's all that we need. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to John chapter 6. We're going to begin the story in verse 22. Now, as you turn your Bibles there, I want to remind you, after Jesus had done this great miracle last week that you talked about, the feeding of the 5,000, which was probably more like twelve to 15,000, after he did this great miracle, what do they want to do to Jesus? Do you remember what they wanted to do? They wanted to make him king, right? So they come after him, and what does Jesus do at the end of the story? He withdraws. Because what they wanted was, okay, if you can do this, 
Guess what you could do to Rome, right? And so they're like, if you can turn this few little bit of this, this kid's lunch and feed all these people, I bet you could bring the hurt on Rome. And so they went after Jesus and want him to be king, but he withdraws because that's not what he was sent here for. And as he withdraws, he sends his disciples into a boat to go to the other side of the sea. And you know the story. Jesus, as he comes out in the, the, the middle of the night, and he walks on water, and they're freaked out. And he says, don't be afraid, it's me. And they invite him onto the boat. And by the time he gets on the boat, they've made it to the other side. And now it's daytime. And let's look what happens in the story. And as we look at the story, there's two things I want you to notice with me this morning. And the first one's found in verse 22 through 26. It says this. On the next day, so this is the day after the feeding of the 5,000, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with the disciples, but the disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking what? What were they seeking? They were seeking Jesus. Now, pause there for a moment. That seems like a fair decision on their part, doesn't it? That seems like an honorable decision they would make that, hey, we were there that day before and, and Jesus was teaching and it was, it was incredible. Or maybe he was spending some time with some folks and, and then it came that moment where we were all hungry and it was getting late and, and Jesus provided food. And, and so it's honorable to think that they would want to seek out Jesus. But look what happens next. Verse 25, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus, knowing their heart, said this. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Not quite so honorable now, is it? Is it? First thing I want you to notice in this, that the first thing that I want you to see in the passage is how Jesus calls out the wrong motives. Jesus calls out the wrong motives. Why did they pursue Jesus? Come on. Why did they pursue Jesus? Why? Because why? They want to eat. They're hungry. I mean, that was last night. How many of you ate last night and are already getting hungry today? Okay, a few honest people, right? And so there's a moment where they realize, hey, what we ate last night, well, that was great, and there's a lot left over. It's a new day, and I'm hungry. I don't know about you, but I do try to eat every day, right? And so they're hungry, and they go to, to find him, but the reason they went after him wasn't because of who he is. They weren't seeking him to find out more about who Jesus is. They were seeking him because what he could do. Now think about that one for a moment. I think, if I, we were honest, that many of our prayer lives probably reflect that statement. Most of our prayer lives are loaded with requests. God, do this. God, do that. God, please don't do this. And then we throw in the caveat statement at the end, but your will be done, right? So it's like, okay, I really want you to do this, but by the way, you know, I'd really, I, I'd like it to be your will, but if not, you know, you know I'm going to throw this in there. And in fact, there's, there used to be this thing out that said, you know, how to pray, and it was the word ACTS. It was an acronym, and ACTS is like this. It's adoration, uh, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. And the point of that whole idea of praying was following the model that Jesus prayed when he prayed in Matthew. He starts with not request. What does Jesus start with? Our Father who are in heaven, hallowed or holy be your name. And so these people pursued Jesus not because of who he was, 
but because of what he could do. And I think sometimes we wrestle with that. When was the last time our prayer life really started with us adoring him? Us just adoring who Jesus is, what he's done for us, and us just celebrating and giving honor and glory because of all the things that he's done. When's the last time our prayer life started that way, where we began to adore him, and then we began to confess our own sin, and we began to thank him for all that he's done, and then at the end go, and by the way, Lord, now that my heart is in tune with you, here's some things that I have some real needs about. Could you address these? I think many of us get it reversed, and do what they did. We seek Jesus. We pray to the Father, not because of who he is, but because of what he can do for us. These people wanted their bellies full. Now, let's just, let me ask you this question, because we talk about this a lot. If you're Jesus, do you think he ever gets frustrated with people? Come on, would you get frustrated with people? I mean, he gets frustrated to the point that even in the Gospel of Matthew, he has to add statements like this. He who has ears, let him hear. Right? Because some of you are going to hear me, but you're not listening. You're not paying attention. If I was Jesus, I would be so frustrated with people around me. But he's not because look what Jesus does. Jesus tells them in light of this wrong motivation, he tells them what the right motivation should be. How they should have sought him. What should be the forefront thing that they're thinking and pursuing in their life. Look with me in verse 27. Here's what he says. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. Here's what Jesus says. You want to know what the right motivation to pursue me? The wrong motivation was you just needed more food in your belly. That's wrong. You're in it for what I could do for you. Here's the right motivation. Seek eternal things not temporary things. You're focused on food. You're focused on something that you think is going to satisfy you, but what you find out is it always falls short. Food never fully and finally satisfies you. It's almost like he's, it's almost the same notion that we go back to the woman at the well who was getting water. Remember the water at the well? And and she goes, I offer this water. He says, I can give you water where you will thirst no more. She was focused on the temporal, not the eternal. And what Jesus tells these people is, you've got to start focusing on the temporary things. You've got to stop focusing on the food that's going to perish. I want you to focus on what really matters, eternal things. What's Jesus' point? I want you to focus on the condition of your soul. Now, I think we do the same thing they do. I think sometimes we prioritize the temporal over the eternal, don't we? Many of us pursue temporary things over eternal things all the time. Many of us are minded toward temporary things versus eternal things. Here's what I mean. Many of us find ourselves pursuing pleasures of this world, are pursuing possessions in this world, are pursuing successes in this world, and we pursue them thinking that once we attain them, that somehow those things might fully and finally satisfy the cravings of our soul. But what do we find out? They all fall short. Every single one of them falls short. And if we're not careful, those things that we pursued have now become an idol in our lives. 
Our pursuit of them has replaced our pursuit of him. And so Jesus calls out the wrong motive. He said, listen, you've come to me because not of who I am and what I'm about, but you've come to me because of what I can do for you. And I'm telling you, stop thinking temporal and start thinking eternal. And if there's one message I think the church has got to hear, it's the words of the Apostle Paul and the book of Colossians where he says, let us set our mind on things above. You and I have to be eternally minded. Now, what does that mean? Well, they ask that question. Look what happens next. They respond to Jesus, and look what they say in verse 28. And they said to him, well, what must we do to be doing the work of God? In other words, okay, Jesus, I'm not saying you're wrong, but how do I become eternally minded? If you want me to be minded, not toward the temporal things like food that's going to perish, and you want me to focus on what really matters, and that's the condition of my soul, which lasts forever, by the way, how do we do that? And Jesus gives this beautiful answer in verse 29. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God. In other words, here's how you do it. That you what? Let's say it together. That you what? Believe in him whom he has sent. Here's how you become eternally minded. You ready? Here's how you become focused on what matters the most. You believe in him. Now, this is not a statement of easy beliefism. Now, I want you to follow me just for a moment. When Jesus makes this statement, this is not simple at all. Because sometimes we look at this word believe and we go, well, yeah, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And it's kind of a haphazard, apathetic, kind of, yeah, I kind of believe it, but I'm kind of in, kind of not in. When Jesus says you have to believe, think about the ramifications. Think about the implications of what he's saying. He's saying, if you want to focus on eternal things, here's where it begins. It begins with believing in the one that, G, that God the Father has sent. In other words, understanding, here's what belief is, understanding that there is life after this life. Understanding that you are broken and you need an eternal God to rescue and to save you. And understanding that you need to put your full un, unconditional trust in him. That's what Jesus is saying. If you want to be eternally minded, here's where it begins. Believing in him. Because that's all that truly matters. And that's the only thing. Listen, believing in him is the only thing that can fully and finally satisfy the cravings of your soul. Now, track with me for a moment. He's called out the wrong motives. I just want to fill my belly. He's like, oh, come on, guys. Focus on eternal things, not temporal things. Well, how do we do that? Well, it starts with you believing. So they're tracking with Jesus now, and look what they say to him next. They respond in verse 30 through 31. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and we may believe you? What work did you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And basically, here's the response. Okay, you want us to believe in you? Prove it. Do something. Show out. Do a miracle. And I'm all in. Now, that's a pretty easy position to take, isn't it? Isn't it? I mean, if you were the people at the Red Sea with Moses, and God parts the water, I'm on his team, aren't you? I'm with him. 
Or if I'm at the tomb of Lazarus, and I'm with Mary and Martha, and they're standing there, and Jesus just with a shout of his voice says, Lazarus, come forth. Because now remember, he's there four days. He's like dead, dead. He's not kind of dead. He's really dead. And all of a sudden, Lazarus comes out of the tomb. I'm going to be on team Jesus. How about you? So seeking a sign is not a hard thing to do. And they're saying, listen, we want to follow you, believe you, but prove it. As if Jesus is the one on trial. As if Jesus has to be the one that's told what to do. Can you see a pattern here? Hey, we want to fill our bellies. Now, here's what's going to motivate us to believe in you. You say, believing you gets us eternally minded. Well, here's what's going to motivate us. Let us see your handiwork. Let us see you do a miracle. And I think you and I wrestle with that sometimes. I know that there's been times in my life, and there's probably times in your life, where we prayed similar prayers. Hey, God, if, if, you, if you would just show up in a way that I can know that you're really with me. God, could you just do something that I can know that you truly love me? God, could you do this thing in my life so that I could take doubt and do away with it? Haven't we all prayed those kind of prayers? Haven't we all prayed those sign prayers where we want God to do something to prove who he is? Sure we have. And then they look, look and what they do, well, they go back to history. They go back and say, hey, you know, our fathers had a sign. <laughs> you showed our fathers a sign to prove who God was, and that sign was what? It was manna. And, and Moses brought us manna, and, and we saw the manna every day. Now, you know that every day for 40 years, God provided manna for them. Did you know that? Every day for 40 years. And manna, they had no refrigerators, nor were they to keep it overnight. They had to eat it till the sun went down, and then it was gone. And every day, God provided for them. Well, if you, you know, God showed us his power then. What are you going to do? And look what Jesus says. I love it. He addresses their second wrong motive. One was filling the bellies, thinking temporal. But now it was this notion of prove us Prove to us that we believe by showing us a sign. Look what Jesus says in verse 32. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father who gives the true bread from heaven. Verse 33. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Here's Jesus' response. You ready? Moses didn't give you that bread. It didn't come from Moses. Do you know where the manna came from? It came from God. And the manna that you, you ate, the manna that your forefathers ate, the manna you're talking about, it didn't last. It was temporary too. But I'm talking about not things that are temporal. I'm talking about true bread. I'm talking about the real bread that has come down from heaven. I'm talking about true bread that is not temporary, and it's actually a, not, not a substance to be taken in. It is a person who's come from heaven. And this person, this true bread that has come from heaven, is not just for a nation. He's come for the entire world. Now think about what Jesus is telling these people. Hey, you've, you've, you've gone all the way around the sea to find me. And your motives to find me have been wrong. You wanted me just to fill your bellies. You are focused on temporal things. I want you focused on internal things. Here's how you start that, by believing in me. Well, and you want to believe in me, you, you're motivated by if I can do a sign for you or not. That's a wrong motivation. I don't have to do a sign to prove to you who that I am. You need to put your faith and trust in me because the signs you're looking for are temporary signs. That manna was not from Moses, that was from God. But I'm offering you, listen, I'm offering you true bread 
Bread where you will never hunger again. And it's not something you absorb and take in. It's something that, that comes from heaven. And it's not just for you as Israelites. It's for the world. Now listen to this. At this point in the story, they're still tracking with Jesus because look what they say next. Verse 34. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Give it to us. Now, when you read the story there, you get the idea that they're like, okay, we get that our motivation's wrong. We get we sought you for the wrong reasons. We get that we are temporary-minded versus eternally-minded. We get that. We understand about this believing. We, we kind of heard you on this whole doing a sign thing, but, but we want the bread, the true bread you're offering. Jesus, give it to us always. In other words, we want it right now. Here's a question. Do you think they completely understood what Jesus was talking about at this point? No. So what does Jesus do? Only what Jesus always does. He clarifies it a little bit more. And it leads me to the second thing I want you to notice. And it's found in verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Here's what Jesus does. He says, listen, here's what you really need. You need to put your faith in the true bread. And oh, by the way, it's me. The first I am statement in the Gospel of John. I am the bread of life. It's me. I am the only one who can fully and finally satisfy the cravings of your soul. It's just me. If you want that craving satisfied, it can only be found in me. Because if you, if you come to me and you believe in me as the true bread, you will never hunger and you will never thirst again. But Jesus doesn't just stop there. Jesus tells them, look, if you choose to believe in me, let me give you some promises. So Jesus lays out three promises to people who put their faith in him. Here's the first promise back in verse 35. Look what he says again. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst again. Here's the first promise. If you choose to believe in me, you will never hunger or thirst again. In other words, I am all that you need. Just me. Whatever you're going through, whatever you're wrestling with, whatever you're seeking, whatever you need, you can find all of that in me. Do you know why Walmart became the monopoly that it was for so many years? Because you could find everything at Walmart. Right? Come on. Am I right? You get your tires. You get your oil change. You get your groceries. You get your clothes. You get your electronics. You get your toys. I mean, it, you get your hygiene products. Everything you need can be found in great old Walmart, right? Jesus is greater than Walmart, right? Anything you need spiritually, emotionally, anything you need mentally, it's me. If you will put your faith in me, you will never hunger or thirst again. That's the first promise. The second promise is found in verse 36, and I love this one. But I say to you that you have seen me and yet not believed. And all the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Second promise. Those who put their faith in Jesus will never be cast out. 
They will never be turned away. They will never be discarded. Did you pick up on what Jesus said there? He said, many of you have seen me and you still don't believe. Now, why is that important to say that? He's saying it because many of you have seen my miracles. You've seen the things that I've done and you still don't believe. But those of you that believe in me, those who realize that there's a life after this one, those who realize that you are sinners, and those of you that realize that you need a Savior, and those of you who put your faith in me, you will never, ever, ever be cast out. Your salvation is secure. Did you hear me say that, church? Your salvation is secure. Now, I want to say it one more time because I want you to hear me. Your salvation is secure. We live in a world where there's different beliefs out there that believe that, you know what, if I live this way and I act this way, that somehow I can lose my salvation. Listen to me. If you weren't good enough to earn it, you can't be bad enough to lose it. Right? Salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone. You, you don't control your salvation. The Bible says in John 10, 28, which we'll get there in a while, is that this, is that once the Father has given you eternal life, no one can pluck you out of the Father's hand. You know who no one is? No one. That word means no one, no body, or no thing. So I love this because Jesus makes this promise. If you put your faith in me, not only will you never hunger again, but your salvation is secure. You will never be cast out. Is that good news, church? Last promise he gives them is this. Verse 38 through 40. Look what he says here. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that has, he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Here's the last promise, that if you put your faith in me, I will raise you up and give you eternal life. So to all the people there that day, he's like, listen, you pursued me for all the wrong reasons. You're hungry. Come on. If I fed you today, wouldn't you come back tomorrow? I want you to satisfy the craving of your soul. So stop thinking temporary. Start thinking eternal. Let's address that issue. Well, here's how you address it. You believe in the one, the true bread. And they say, okay, well, we, we want to believe, but, but show us a sign. Well, what good is a sign going to do? There's many of you who have already seen this stuff, and you still haven't believed. And then Jesus says, but I am the bread of life. I'm the place that can fully and finally satisfy all your desires, all your longings, all your needs. And if you put your faith in me, man, you'll never hunger again. If you put your faith in me, your salvation is secure. If you put your faith in me, there's going to come a day where I will come for you, and I'm going to raise you up, and I'm going to bring you into my home, and we're going to spend forever and ever and ever again having eternal life. Now, why would Jesus say all this? Because he wanted to know, I'm the one who's come from heaven. It's me. If you missed all the clues, this guy, right? That's what he's saying. It's me. I've come from heaven, and I've come to do the will of my Father. And Jesus tells us what the will of the Father is. The will of the Father is, first of all, that he would not lose anything given to him. In other words, it's the idea of losing is the idea, or given is the idea of salvation. That those who believe in me are saved, and I've come to secure that salvation. 
And then he says, also the will of the Father is to raise them up. That there's going to come a day that part of the will of the Father is to give you eternal life on the other side and after this life. Now think about what Jesus has done. He's come out of feeding 5,000 people. They've chased him around the sea, and he calls out the wrong motivation, and he addresses it. And then he points to himself as being the bread of life. He's saying everything you need, everything you're looking for, the answer is me. Now, I know every single one of us in the room have had moments in our life where we are seeking something. Maybe you're seeking hope. Maybe you're seeking peace. Maybe you're seeking comfort. Maybe you're seeking joy. Maybe you're seeking forgiveness. Can I just tell you something? You can only find the answer in a personal relationship with Christ. Because if you try to find joy in something else, that's called happiness, and it's an emotion that does this, and it will wither away. Joy is when you're in that deep, dark tunnel of your life, and you know that God has provided light at the end of that tunnel. That's joy. And if some of us try to seek peace and anything other than Christ, it's always going to fall short because that peace you're going to find, it's going to be this thing you're pursuing, but you can never find it. You can't find it in the bottom of a bottle. You can't find it in solitude. You can only find it in a personal relationship with Christ. If you're looking for forgiveness, you're never going to find true forgiveness apart from Jesus. So I don't know what you're seeking this morning, but I do know the answer to your question. It's Jesus. And I know that seems basic, and I know that seems simple, but that is biblical, right? So if you don't know Christ as your Savior, and you're looking for those things, would you say yes to him today? Or maybe you're here this morning, and you're a believer. And I want to challenge every believer today that maybe we need to make a greater commitment as a believer. Maybe we need to make a commitment because he satisfies the hunger of our soul, that maybe we lean on him a little bit more. Because he's the answer. Maybe we should lean on him a lot more than we already are doing. Maybe you're looking for direction. Maybe you're looking for discernment. Maybe you're looking for clarity. Are you leaning on the Lord? I was reminded this last week, we were gone a couple of weeks, and, and there's nothing any more amazing. I'm just going to tell you, nothing any more amazing outside of our worship experience. Sitting in a deer stand at a sunrise, chilly, and just enjoying the beauty of what God has created. And in that moment, sitting in that deer stand, a little bit of shivering was going on too, but sitting in that deer stand and thinking this thought and being convicted of this, Doug, even you sometimes spend a lot of your life pursuing direction, discernment, and clarity from other godly believers, which is a good thing, right? But sometimes you do it to the neglect of leaning on me. Oh, right? Shot to the heart. And I can say there's been some decisions in my life in the last month or month and a half that I've sought a lot of different wisdom from a lot of different godly people. But in that stillness of that moment, I was reminded that I had I'd replaced me leaning on the Lord with leaning on other believers. And the reality is that if we really believe that he's all that we need, we need to spend more time leaning on him over everything else. Amen? Amen. Then also, if we're going to make a new commitment, maybe we need to make a new commitment knowing to lean on him more, but because he never cast us out, that we would make a commitment to let go of our doubt. 
I can't tell you the number of people I talk to that doubt their salvation. They know they made a decision for Christ when they were younger, but they look at how they're living their life and they're struggling and they're wrestling and they doubt and they doubt and they doubt and they doubt and they doubt. Listen, if you've said yes to Jesus, the Bible says of anyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be what? And if you've called on the name of the Lord and you know from the depth of your heart you're leaning and you've trusted and you put your faith in him, let doubt go because your salvation is secure today. And maybe today you need to make that commitment as a believer, I'm going to doubt no more. And maybe one more commitment we need to make because in the end he's going to raise us up. Maybe we need to commit to start looking to the future. You know what looking to the future does for us? It helps us live in the present. Right? Like, for example, if you're, if you're a budgeter, any budgeters in the room with your money, any of you budget? Wow. Okay, we got to talk about budgeting some point, right? So, so, so if, you're, if you're a budgeter, what do you do? You have goals that are in the future, and the only way to achieve those goals is by making some adjustments in the what? The present. If we know there's coming a day when we're going to see him, and he's going to raise us up and give us eternal life, should that not impact how we live today? Should that not impact the urgency and the passion that we live with this very moment? Sure it should. And so maybe as a believer today, maybe we need to make a commitment. Maybe we need to make a commitment to lean on him more. Maybe we need to make a commitment to let go of the doubt that's in our lives. Or maybe we need to make a commitment to spend more time looking to our future, what he's doing and what he's going to do, and let it impact how we live today. So I'm going to ask you now, I'm going to ask everybody to stand with me if you would. Everybody stand, every head bowed. And every